You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Once again, our text today is going to be in Exodus chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 22, so you can follow along there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen. You can scroll on your phone. There's also some Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you you can grab to follow along with as well. And we've been in a series called Out of Bondage. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and we have been discussing God's covenant with his people and how he rescued them from bondage, out of bondage into freedom. So once again, that's Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. And if you get there, and when you get there, if you are willing and able this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read together. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to just say welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're glad that you made us a part of your week. Um, like Eric said, we've been working through... Uh, a year-long series through the book of Exodus. And what we did at the beginning of the, beginning of the year is we kind of broke it up into three mini-sermon series. Um, and so we're coming to the back end. This is the last sermon uh, of the first part of three, if, uh, if it's kind of a trilogy through Exodus, as we turn the page and kind of close a chapter of the book as Israel has made its way by the mighty hand of the Lord out of Egypt and out of bondage. And so we're, we're finishing up. And so... Um, this morning, we're going to read that final page. Last week, we, were at, we did Easter uh, Red Sea, talked a little bit about the Red Sea um, and the Lord bringing the children of Israel kind of to a place of crisis um, with the Red Sea at their back, fortified cities all around them, Pharaoh's armies bearing down, and then the Lord parting the Red Sea and bringing them through and, and finally kind of destroying uh, the Egyptian kingdom and closing that door of their lives. So now they're facing out into the wilderness uh, and for the first time, the threat, the looming threat of Egypt isn't there. And, uh, and, and there's no longer the kind of this, this dragon breathing down their neck of, uh, hey, we're going to bring you back into bondage. We're going to bring you back into Egypt. And now for the first time, they're free from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And we're going to pick up at the first thing that they do. The children of Israel celebrate that freedom. Moses is going to sing a song. And, uh, and then they're going to make their way into this little, this little area called the Waters of Marah. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about what's going on here in this story, the, the bitter waters made sweet, and how does it kind of close the chapter uh, 
and move us into the next phase as the children of Israel wander in the wilderness. So before we do, though, if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for us. I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Thank you that you've preserved your word for us thousands of years, many generations, through many hands. Thank you that this morning I don't have to fumble around in the dark trying to offer my own best wisdom, but instead I can just go to your word, which is eternally true and faithful. Lord, we ask now, Holy Spirit, minister to us collectively, yes, but also individually, uniquely as you know even more deeply than we know ourselves. You know what we need. You know the encouragement we need for those that are weak, the admonishment we need for those that are idle, the the challenge that some of us need, the conviction that some of us need, the healing that some of us need. And so, Lord, we do submit to you now. We surrender our hearts to you, asking that you might meet those needs through the power of your word and that you would meet us here as your word has promised us you are here with us and we trust that. And we just surrender ourselves, asking for ears to hear, eyes to see, a tender heart to receive. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen, amen. So the Bible is a book filled with, with songs. Okay, we have a whole entire, you know, the, um, the largest book of the Bible chapter-wise is called the book of songs. And, and it's not, sometimes we'll make a mistake. We think that all of the songs in the Bible are contained in, you know, the song of songs or psalms. And that's just not true. Particularly in the narratives of the Old Testament, what you'll find is that every time there's kind of a, an epoch of time or... Uh, a shift in redemptive history as God is revealing himself progressively, there will be a, a song that breaks out that kind of is a line of demarcation as we, as we learn to understand something new or unique about who the Lord is and what he's revealing about himself. This happens here with Moses. Moses is going to sing a song, um, but it's not the only time this happens. You know, In the book of Judges, you see that Deborah breaks out into song when... Uh, the Israelites defeat the, the armies that are surrounding them, um, and she breaks out into a big, large song. You see this even in the New Testament with Mary's song or, uh, you know, Elizabeth's song. You know, th- there's all these, these moments uh, that the breaking out of a song kind of is a line of demarcation. You know, the incarnation being a massive moment in the scriptures, and so Mary breaks out into song. And here, chapter 15, the reason that this is such a line of demarcation is that Egypt is now over. The Israelites are moving into a new era. They're now moving into a time where God's going to plant them as a nation. They've never been a nation, but now they are a nation. But even more importantly, what's happening here is that God wants the children of Israel to never forget this moment. And and I'm not just, uh, this is not conjecture. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and then onward throughout the Old Testament, God will continue to refer to himself as I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. He wants them to remember this moment of redemption. And in particular, what what I want to do before we jump into the text that Eric just read, that portion, is I want to read Moses' song. There's a characteristic about God that he reveals himself to Israel as here that he wants them to remember. And I want to focus in on that. I want, to, I want to hone in and say, what is it about God that he revealed himself in the Exodus story uh, that's unique, 
that he wants Moses to remember, that he wants Israel to remember, and not just Moses and Israel at this time, but every generation following he wants them to remember. So let's read it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. I joked with the 9 o'clock. I know that's a lot of verses. I'm hooked on phonics. I think I can get through this. So let's just try to, and here's what I want you guys to be listening for. What do you hear as the theme about God in Moses' song? What do you hear as the theme about God's character in Moses' song? So let's go. Verse 1, chapter 15 says this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Eden dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So here's my contention. These 18 verses give us a snapshot of something unique about the character and nature of our God, namely that the Lord fights for his people. The Lord is victorious, powerful, ruling and reigning, warrior king who fights for his people. Verse 3 particularly, it says, the Lord is is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Now remember, when you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. That's the name that God had given unto Moses when he saw him in the burning bush. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. But it's not just that. He goes on to say things like, he defeated Pharaoh, he defeated Egypt's armies, he defeated the gods of Egypt. He will defeat the giants of all of Canaan. He says they tremble at the name of Yahweh. Edom and Moab and Philist- the Philistia, all of them are trembling now because they know the God who defeated Egypt, right? And then he ends it with that the Lord, Yahweh, will reign. He's a ruling king. The Lord 
is a warrior king who fights. I think it was maybe 10 years ago, a decade ago, maybe a little over that, but Brendan and I have been doing ministry for a long time together and we went to, we used to go to conferences and, um, and diff- different things. This was a, men, a men's conference, I think, particularly that we had gone to. And, um, and he had, uh, we, we, we both knew the main speaker that was supposed to be there. And I won't say names because I think maybe in 20 years I'll say a name, but not now. Um, but I remember that he was really excited. And, and Brendan and I are on two different sides of this spectrum. Typically, even if I'm going and I'm really excited to listen to the speaker, I'll never go and like, you know, introduce myself. But Brendan's like, I'll introduce myself, you know. And uh, we always, I always joke with him about this, but he'll like shake their hand and say, what you've done has changed my life, you know, and it's true for him. And uh, so good for him. I would never do that, right? In fact, I'll get in the elevator with them and be like, what's your name? You know? <laughs> but anyway, so Brennan went up and he introduced himself. And I remember afterwards, I said, you know, how did it go? He said, not good. Guy's a kind of a jerk. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, maybe, you know, and I'm trying to give him the benefit of that. Well, maybe he had a tough day, you know? He's, nope, you know, jerk. Guy's a jerk. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and when, I was, when I was reading this text, I was reminded about, you know, there's always this I guess tension, it's not, I say always, it doesn't always have to be there, but oftentimes there's a tension between the impression that you get about someone, about who they are, when you know them through a medium versus when you actually know them uh, or actually get to meet them in person. So maybe like you've watched a TV show or if you watched a YouTube video or if you've listened to some songs or you've watched some interviews and then you actually meet the person that you kind of consider to be, um, you know, helpful or a hero to you or something, and then they're kind of off-putting. They're not the guy or the gal that you thought they were when you watched the video, right? If this has never happened to you, then just never pull a Brendan and go talk to them. Just kind of keep pretending that they are who you think they are. But I say this because how we view the Lord matters because it gives us a perception, it gives us this impression about who God is that then will directly affect our worship. So walk with me on this. Like we have these pictures of God, movies about Jesus. We've heard sermons, sometimes very one-sided sermons about God or about who Jesus is or about Jesus' life and ministry. And what ends up happening is then we develop a perception. We develop an impression. We develop a picture of God as we see him. And it's really important that it's fully formed with all that the Bible's revealed because if it's not fully formed with all the Bible, I mean the whole counsel of God, then what we have is an if we have a very partial, kind of mutated version of the God of the Bible, both what a preacher emphasizes in his ministry and what a preacher decides to ignore in his ministry are both really important. Because if you emphasize something often about the character and nature of God and tend to ignore or minimize another part of who God is, then it's almost like you decided to do curls at the gym, but only with one arm. You know, or we've all met the guy that's got like huge chest big shoulders, and then he puts his swim shorts on, and you're like, whoa, you know, you think if he might be able to kick him right over, you know, because he's just got the chicken legs. And uh, that can become our Christian life, our perception of who God is. We see this later in the Ten Commandments, uh, and we're going to get to it, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but the second commandment given to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai is that God commands the children of Israel to create no graven image or likeness of God. Why would he do that? Well, one is, yes, there's coming from an Egyptian culture, which is very idolatrous, very pagan. They had their, their gods that they'd make out of metal, and they'd, they would worship those gods. 
But it's even bigger than that. This is not just some archaic commandment of a bygone era that we're supposed to ignore. The reason that God gives this commandment is that it's as true today as it was then. And it's this. If we were to create any image of God and say that this fully in totality expresses all that Yahweh is, all that God is, it would be a mutated, perverted, incomplete descriptor. There's no way you could capture everything that God is with some carved image. In the same way, there's no way that you're going to have a fully formed perception of everything that God is by only taking snippets of YouTube clips, sermons, whatever, and saying, I know God, you know. It's kind of like saying, you know, if you know all the stats of your favorite sports player and maybe even, you know, you know, his wife's name, you know, his kid's name, you know, where he lives, all the teams that he was a part of, by the way, that's creepy, but some of you do, um, but you don't know him. You know, things about him. I would say, you know, minimally about him to, to know him would be to actually get to experience what it's like to communicate or commune with him. And then you might get to know him. Exodus chapter 15 is about God revealing to the children of Israel in the Exodus story a piece of who he is that up until this point, no other human being had experienced just yet to this level. Yes, Abram had experienced God, and yes, Isaac, and yes, Jacob had even wrestled with God, but no one had experienced to this moment God as the warrior who fights for them like the children of Israel just had when they watched the greatest empire the world had ever seen up to the point be swallowed up in a sea that God had both parted and then brought down upon them. He, they watched the plagues happen, right? And so he wants them to know God is a God of might. Yahweh is a God of strength. God is a God committed to his glory, fierce in his love for his people, Unmatched in his wisdom, unmatched in his authority as the king who reigns. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, many of us, if I had to guess, we know God as a God who forgives because in our time, in our context, in our culture, oftentimes we, are, we will preach that. We will talk about that. It's something that's prized. It's, you know, Instagram worthy. You know, we always know the characteristics of God that our culture likes by looking at, you know, the products we buy. You know, it's like we put Jeremiah 29, 11 up on, you know, our mantelpiece because we want to believe that God knows our future, knows our purposes, and, and has a purpose for us in our lives. So we value meaning. Um, we don't typically put the, uh, the rest of the verse that, you know, or the rest of the chapters where Jeremiah is basically sent off into exile and that was God's purpose for him. You know, that's not on the mantelpiece. It's like, I know there's a purpose for you. It's to prosper you. And also you're going to exile. They'll gouge your eyes out. You know, we don't put that on the mantelpiece, even though it's in the Bible, you know. We put things like Jesus wept because we want to view Jesus as an empathetic and sympathetic high priest, which he is. We don't put things like Jesus fashioned his own whip and beat people out of the temple because we kind of don't want to have that Jesus in our house. Like the one that would show up for dinner, turn the table over, create a ruckus. So we know God as a God who forgives, but some of us, we, maybe we don't know God as a God who fights, you know? Like we think of Jesus and we think he'll turn the other cheek. We don't think of Jesus, book of Revelation, shows up, sword coming out of his mouth, rider of the white horse, that thing. We know God is a God who creates. He's the creator God. But we haven't known him as God who saves us from the depths. 
Like we think that we're, we, we need to see ourselves as savable, but what we need to see ourselves is in utter need of saving, lest we misunderstand that God being a God who saves is essential, not just an option. We know him as a God who exists, but not as a God who reigns, as a God who has good intentions, but maybe not as a God who acts powerfully in accordance with those intentions. You know, like there's a difference between me and God in that like I intend to mow my lawn later, but you know, maybe not. God intends to get glory over Pharaoh and he will act in accordance with that purpose. Or as the, psalm, the psalmist says, God sits on a throne in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. God doesn't have a counselor that he has to talk to about his issues before he acts. He just acts. Now, what does it look like on the ground? Well, it looks like something like this. You know, God's real, but maybe he's not interested in the intimate affairs of my life. Like, yeah, God has global purposes, but that's not the same as me. God's more kind of like a divine clockwinder. Like he wound up the universe and then now he's just kind of letting it all play out. Like God forgives me when I do bad things, but when I hit my greatest trial, it's more on me. I got to figure this out. Like maybe God's able to heal me or to, to step in and to fight for me, but he's not always willing, so I need to be the one to fix it. Okay. So the question is, how do we get here? And I'm specifically talking to Christians now, and, and, and there's a purpose for this, because the children of Israel have been redeemed out of Egypt, okay, post-redemption. How do we get to this place in our lives where we see God's supernatural, unmatched, unignorable power, just like the Israelites did? They just watched this play, play out before them. We too, if you're saved in the room, you watched God take you. Hopefully you recognize this, that God didn't just like kind of pick you up, dust you off and make you a little better than you already were because you were kind of already pretty good, but now he's made you a little better, more useful. Like God looked at you and said like, he's got gifts, I could use him. Or ooh, she's pretty, I could use a pretty girl, you know? No, like you were dead in your trespasses, funeral procession was on the way to the grave, Jesus stepped in, took your corpse and made you into something. You know, you were Pinocchio, now you're a real boy. You know? Hopefully we catch this. And that's unmatched power. Only God can do that. And yet all of us, either you have been here, you are here right now, or you are headed here, all of us will get to the place where we will relegate that to just an aberration. That was then, this is now. Something happens to us often after regeneration where we slowly make our vision of the Lord more tame, more manageable, more safe, And listen to me, most importantly, more like us. Over time, we make a God, Yahweh, who's a man of war, who does things you know you could never do. And over time, we kind of dress him more up. He's more manageable. Jesus in a three-piece suit, you know? Or at least Jesus in a nice polo tucked in. Now, there's a lot of hope for us in today's passage because if we're honest with ourselves that we've done this, The Bible records that the same spiritual lethargy and faithlessness that befalls us also befell the children of Israel in the wilderness. So check this out. What may have taken you months to get to, or maybe even years, it takes the children of Israel three days. Let's read it in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, 
and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, that's really a confusing sentence. Marah means bitter. Kind of makes it make more sense, right? Okay, continue. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So it takes them three days and they're already grumbling against Moses. Like, well, now what'd you do? You brought us out here again to die of thirst, you know? Now, before you get too judgy, I would say try going without water for three days and you might have kind of been this way, right? If you've never done that, it's tough. That's very difficult to go through. Like I cannot drink a cup of coffee in the morning and maybe start thinking this way. But if I'm right, and I think that I am, that you, have, you and I have either been here, are here, or are headed here, then it's important we answer the question that I posed earlier. Why do we relegate God's character and nature to be more, let's say, deist in nature, meaning that he doesn't really intervene when we have already watched him intervene in our own lives? We've seen him do it. If you're saved, he did it. Why do we then say, I've got to be the one to handle it? Here's what I'll say. Because it feels safer and easier to believe the lie that it's up to you to fix your problems, not God. You might be saying, that's ridiculous. Well, let me say it another way. It feels safer and easier to rely on your own self-salvation techniques than to rely on the God whom you cannot see. Because at least when you look at your bank account and it doesn't feel like it's where it should be, you can list out a plan that you write down with your own hand and you kind of have a you know, fully formed functional idea of what I might need to do to make this right. But to trust God is to say, I cannot see, nor do I understand, nor do I know how long it will, it will take, but I just have to stand and watch him be faithful. And that's what we call in the 21st century crazy. That's crazy. Verifiable. You, you could go to jail, you know, if you do that and you, your kids are hungry and you're kind of like, well, let's just wait, wait for the Lord. That's how the CPS gets called, okay? And you guys know that. Now, you might be asking the question, uh, and I've asked this a lot too, so you can kind of like take a deep breath. I'll just put this one on me. I've often asked the question, I'm good for God fighting for me. Why doesn't he do it a little earlier on in the story? Like, I don't know, instead of day three, what about day one? When I'm thirsty, let's say. Because can we all agree that day three, you're more thirsty than day one? It's a little bit more desperate on day three than day one. Let me put it another way. Uh, You know, having to get groceries when you don't have any money is a lot more desperate on week four than it is on week one. Agreed? Having two kids to feed is more difficult than having one or none, but then having four is more difficult than two. And having five means God bless you. Some of you are in here right now. You know what I mean? You know? And you're probably asking, I trust you, Lord, but I just need you to step in a little earlier. And why not? You're going to do it anyway. I trust you. Here's what I'll say. Two things. Number one, what we forget is that he does do that every other time. It's just that we only consider God making a move for us when he has withheld that blessing at any moment of our lives. That's when he's answered. We forget that he's answered every other time, even when you and I never asked him for it. That's how good he is. 
Even when you and I were like, man, I am so good at my job. That's why I got all this money. Look at my bank account. God gave you that. You never thanked him for that. And then whenever it gets tight, you're like, Lord, show up. It's like I already did every single Friday. So that's number one. But number two, here's what I'll say, because some of you, I I know for a fact you're hearing that and you're already a little bit mad at me because you're like, easy for you to say when your bank account's not mine. Here's what I'll say. When he doesn't, there's a reason. And the reason is something like this. God has a deeper desire for you than just merely your comfort. That, listen to me, 2 Corinthians tells us God is a God of all comfort. But here's what I'm trying to do in today's sermon. That's not all God is. Another way to put that would say, God is a God of all comfort, but comfort is not God. God is a God of all comfort, but comfort is not God. God is love, but love is not God. God in his totality, in his manifest presence, is so many things, all goodness, all righteousness. He is all merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And guess what else? And visiting the iniquity of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. Both of those things are true. There's an old pastor, minister in the 1800s. His name was George Mueller. Some of you are familiar with George Mueller, but um, he opened multiple orphanages over the course of his life in ministry. And one of his main goals was that he wanted the whole world of Christians to know that God still answered prayer. I would challenge you, encourage you, read some George Mueller answers to prayer. They're wonderful. But he speaks particularly about the day of trial. And I want to read to you two quotes. And they're going to be put up behind me, but I want you to stick with me. He's speaking directly to this issue. Let's read the first one together. He says this. If indeed we desire our faith to be strengthened, we should not shrink from opportunities for our faith to be tried. And therefore, through the trial, our faith be strengthened. In our natural state, we dislike dealing with God alone. That's worthy of a consideration. Through our natural alienation from God, we shrink from him and from eternal realities. Listen to this line. This cleaves to us more or less even after our regeneration. Thank God he said that. That's, it's some of us think that once we become Christians and we start dealing with this issue, we're like, maybe I'm not a Christian. No. Because the power of sin is still trying to cling to you even though it has no claim over you. And part of that is that you shrink away from God in the moment of trial. Okay, continue. Hence it is that even as believers, we have the same shrinking from standing with God alone, from depending on him alone, from looking to him alone. And yet, this is the very position in which we ought to be if we wish for our faith to be strengthened, close quote. So the first thing Mueller says is, you and I in our natural firstborn state shrink away from God, and that this proclivity clings to us even after we trust Christ and come to know him. That when we meet the trial, our first inclination is to not stand with God alone, but to try and finagle and figure out a way to get out of the trial, whether to push through it, some of us type A is in the room, or to shy away from it. But one thing we are not prone to do is to run to God, stand with him, and watch him move on our behalf. And he says that this is a travesty because that's the very thing God desires for us to do, that our faith might be strengthened. God puts us in situations in the trial to encourage us to look to him alone, not to look to our own abilities or to look to our own idols of our own making, but to him. 
And when we do so, listen to me, he fights for us in power. We have only to, as God told Moses, be silent and see his salvation. And when God does this, he, it increases our faith. Now, you know this intuitively. When God has answered your prayers, what has been the result? Increase in faith. God's trustworthiness. When you're met with the trial, what's the enemy's first attack? Prayerlessness. Self-trust. Run away. Or the children of Israel, grumble. I joked with the 9 a.m. I think this is a, we don't use this word anymore. I think we should bring this back. Grumbling as is an issue. Because, you know, grumbling is, and I, I identify with this, like complaining about wanting to go back to where you were, like, we made a terrible decision, we should just go back. And then someone says, well, then fine, go back. And you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so you just are committed to making it miserable for everybody else on the journey, but you're not quite courageous enough to actually follow through yourself. And that's what the children of Israel did. But notice that it's still the same sin, which is to not stand with God and watch him act. Okay, Mueller goes on. This is the second quote. Listen to what he says. We would rather work a deliverance of our own somehow or other than to simply look to God and wait for his help. But if we do not wait patiently for God's help, if we work a deliverance of our own, then at the next trial of our faith, it will be like this again. And we shall again be inclined to deliver ourselves. And thus, with every fresh instance of that kind, listen to this, our faith will decrease. Hmm. Whilst on the contrary, if we were to but stand still in order to see the salvation of God, to see his hand stretched out on our behalf, trusting in him alone, then our faith would be increased. This is so insightful. Many times we think that there's no cost for our faithlessness in the trial. And Mueller is saying that it either decreases or it increases, but there's no middle ground. Our self-salvation techniques, even when they yield temporal results, they have a net negative result because they decrease our faith in God and they increase our trust in ourselves. Let me put it in real terms. When you meet up with the trial and you finagle a way to get around it, you celebrate yourself and you trust God less. That's what happens. You say, I got this. Even if with your mouth you're like, God got you through, deep down you know that actually you never even asked God for that. You just did everything that you could to make it work. Here's what I'll say. In my personal experience, and by this I mean as a Christian who has failed many times, and in my pastoral experience, and by that I mean those who I've counseled and prayed for, our self-salvation techniques, they can yield temporary results, but they always end in fruit like bitterness, discouragement, despondency, and a ton of unhealthy fruit later on. The long game with self-salvation always tends towards degradation and destruction, even if it immediately gets you out of the circumstance. A very crude example would be if you were to do something deceitful to lie in order to get money to pay off something that you felt very pressed by, it feels good when you've paid it off, but it always ends up haunting you and in the end destroying you because you've compromised something more important than the bill or the debt. You've compromised your integrity. This manifests itself in two major ways. The number one is this. You meet up with a trial and this is for my type A people in the room, you buckle down and say, I got to fix this problem myself. 
And so you throw on the cape and you're going to be the savior of the family. Men, hear me on this. Sometimes as the leaders of our families trying to do the godly thing, we can often do this and fail in front of our kids and our wife, even if we succeed. Because we, rather than saying we need to run to Jesus, we put the cape on and say, I'll go to the cross for you. And maybe you can do that with that second job, that third job, that fourth job. But for how long before you realize you're not the savior? It looks something like this. I'll work harder. And then it's something like, how can I cut corners? How can I scheme? It may end in temptations toward outright deceit. Any way to get this done. And listen, this is what happens sometimes under the guise of, hey, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, I'm worse than an unbeliever if I can't provide for my family. I mean, what kind of schlub am I? And so you got to do something. You feel the need. And, and part of that righteous desire to be able to provide and be like Christ forces you through the enemy's hand to try to be Christ. And those are different things. Okay. Now on the flip side, because some of you are like, oh, good, good, good. That makes me feel a little bit better. Hold on. The other side is when we try to cope with our problem. So if the type A people are like, we're going to fix this, we're going to make it happen, or I'll die trying, the rest of us are the Eeyores of the room. The, problem, the trial comes, it's difficult, and we're just like, this is always how my life is. It's never going to get better. And we just are ready to hide in a hole. That's what happens, right? You look at your friend over there, it's like, I'll get three jobs, and you're like, I'm going to quit my one job I have that's part-time. And really, you're just, you know, honestly, you're just like a, a podcaster with two subscribers, you know, something like that. It's like not even really a job. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's extreme. But he, coping with the problem, this is very real, looks something like this. You know, I got to run away and try to, I feel this sense of uh, the weight of Pharaoh's armies crushing down on me. I got to fix it myself. I, I can't fix it. I'm never going to fix it, so I basically might as well numb this before the sword comes. Comfort foods, substance abuse, counterfeit substitutes, self-destructive behavior. These are all things that kind of numb you up because you know the pain's coming. And listen to me. If you're in the room right now and you've suffered a lot, I've made a lot of jokes. This may be you because you keep getting the, the next shoe is dropping on you all the time. And so I made jokes about it, but deep down, you're like, yeah, that's me. I'm done fighting. I used to be type A. I'm like type Z, which means I don't even want anything to do with it anymore. And I just want you to know, that is the tactic of the enemy. He's okay with type A people. He really is. He actually encourages it. Because if you've ever heard of something like called burnout, the enemy, what he would like to do as you're running hot is throw more wood on the fire. Burn you out. And then there's a third way, which is the invitation of the Lord from God to Moses to the children of Israel. And it comes, here's the irony, it comes in the form of the trial. And he says, you have just but to stand with me and be silent and I will fight for you. To know him as the Lord who fights for you. That's the invitation of this text. And so, of course, it's always something like, what I love about the Exodus story is the way that God does uh, miraculously bring, is never the way that a human would do it, you know? Like there's no Ozarka truck that pulls up into the field, you know, and is like, hey, got some water for y'all. He's like, hey, there's a log, throw it into the water. Hey, it's drinkable. That is to show that only God gets the glory here. Now there's many symbols here, but at the very base level, God gets the glory here. He does it through 
weird, odd, physical means that you and I would never do. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life where God will just meet a need of yours, not how you, you know, it's not through that raise that you thought you were going to get. It's through your neighbor coming over and saying, hey, we're going out of town and we got a pantry full of food and we don't know what to do with it because it's going to rot and they give it to you. And you're like, I would actually choose the raise and the promotion. This feels dirty. And here's what I would say. I'm sure the children of Israel felt that way whenever they were just eating stuff that was falling out of the sky. You know, it's like, it's not exactly the most clean Okay, I want to end here because this is where the story ends. This is 15. And listen to verse 27. Totally random, but not incidental. So they start at Marah. Then they get to this other place. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Okay, this is like uh, you've had a really hard year, two years. You've planned this vacation with your wife. And we've all been a part of this. You're so excited about it, and then everything goes wrong on the, on the trip. And then you finally get there, and you finally plop down, and it's like everything's right. That's this moment. Everything's perfect. It's kind of resort life, right? 70 palm trees, 12 streams, eating grapes. Everything's good. But there's more to it than that. You know, the word Elam literally means big trees. And, and in the Bible, what you always find is when there's you know, streams and palm trees, these are all symbols of fruitfulness. These are all symbols of life. And God's done two things in this immediate interaction right after the Red Sea was parted and the Egyptians were finally put away. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, how were the Israelites described? They were described as being put into bitter slavery. Bitter slavery by Pharaoh. Their lives were bitter. God takes them to a bitter stream, reminds them to rely on him, and then gives them sweet water. And then he shows them to their campsite that he's prepared for them, which is, you know, it's like the Cancun trip that you and your wife are looking forward to. And then, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one more beautiful Old Testament imagery that we see here that teaches us the same lesson in a unique way. There's 12 springs of water. There's 70 palm trees. If you ever see these kind of numbers, I'm not encouraging you to like go off the rails and start becoming a numerologist. But oftentimes there's a reason. Uh, you know, God didn't, you know, there's a reason there weren't just six trees, okay? Um, and, and the reason here is that the other times that we see those two numbers is Jesus appoints for himself 12 apostles and then he chooses 70 other disciples and he sends them out two by two, 12 and 70. And they go out two by two carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what's, what's the connection? Well, the church is made up of Christ's disciples who contain within themselves the message of the living water, the stream that is Christ. Christ is the living water. He is the river of living water. And we are the tributaries. And the gospel message has been preserved by the 12, right? Those 12 tributary streams so that we can offer it to anyone who will hear and we bear fruit by living in faith, as God has said in this text. He says, listen to my words, be diligent, hear what I'm saying to you, just be faithful to hear me. And we share the gospel. And then every tree that is planted beyond that is the fruitfulness of more disciples made. Or as Psalm chapter 1 says, that you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your fruit will never wither, your leaves will never die. He says, this is what the righteous man looks like. 
So what we see here is that a major understanding for trials for the Christian is not merely that God's revealing himself to you, but that he's revealing himself to you and through you. Another way to put that might be something like this. Trials are not just for you to know God, but that through your trials, others might know him too. Or as Paul said, when he's in, a, he's in the jail writing to the Philippian church, he says, it has turned out really good that I'm here in prison because everyone's hearing that I'm here for Christ. He says, so I just keep getting to preach the gospel and all the guards know about Jesus. And then he said, and I heard that some people are preaching Christ because they want to rile up the crowd so that I get beat in prison. And he said, it's awesome because the gospel's getting preached. Now, I want to say Paul's pretty much like, you know, kind of like Batman Christian at that point. Like, it's, that's, that's top-tier faithfulness, right? But the point is still clear. Paul understood that his trials were not just that God would, would reveal himself as a God of comfort and a God who fights for him, but that also others would know that that's who God is through his imprisonment. Now, if you're feeling like, I just don't know if that's me, I don't know if that's... I'm not able to do that. Well, the heart of this text is, of course, reminding us that it is Christ, not Moses, who is the warrior of Exodus, fighting for the people of God, redeeming them out of spiritual bondage through the sacrifice of his own life. It's Christ the Lord who stops the mouths of all the accusers and defeats all the false gods who hate us. It's Christ who rules and reigns even the minute details of our lives. It's Christ who is the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. And so I want to end with this thought. Have you lost this sense of God's character? Have you potentially lost this sense that Christ is not merely dispensing forgiveness, but Christ is also interested in the very minute details of your life to fight for you for his glory? Have you hedged your bets about how interested God is in the things that you have anxiety about? Another way to put it would be, when's the last time you have figuratively felt the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on you, and rather than try to fix it yourself or go hide in a cave, you decided to stand and trust the Lord to fight? My prayer, first for the Christian, is that it would be so this morning. When we take of the cup and you have time to examine, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that you are believing God for that no man can do? What are you believing God for that no institution can offer? You know, maybe it's that person in your life that's unsavable, the Saul of Tarsus person. Maybe that's you. What, what family squabble are you believing God's going to reconcile even though it's unsolvable? You're like, no, they've been fighting for decades. They don't even remember what they're fighting about, but they know they're fighting. What's the thing that you're believing God for that no man could accomplish? And the reason I pose that question is because I believe as Christians, ought we not have something like that? Like, genuinely, there are those things my guess is that in your life, there are those things in spades. So why do we not have at least one? My guess is that we've kind of, we've managed 
to put ourselves in the driver's seat a long time ago. And then most importantly of all, I want to say this to anyone in the room who is sure, isn't sure about Christ. Have you surrendered your life to the Lord? Because there's really only two options. There's the warrior king, Jesus. And you either set yourself up against him thinking that you're going to battle him and win. Or there's the offer that if you surrender to him, he will fight for you. And there's no warrior king that protects like Jesus does. And so this king, this fighter, is not one who slays you when you defy him. Instead, he opens himself up and says, come over to this side. Even though you've had a lot of shots at him, you've swung a lot of swords at him, he says, come on over and I'll fight for you. And I want to encourage you to do so because we have a king that's worthy. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I just want to start by thanking you that in your totality and in your fullness, not only are you a God of grace and of mercy and of love and of comfort, but you are a God who makes war and defends your people. You love your children, and we give you glory for it, God. I pray now that we, collectively and individually, that you would bring to our minds the things that we ought to trust you with, that there would be a lot of things, a lot of situations, a lot of circumstances, a lot of relationships now that would be laid down at your altar, at your feet, and we would but stand with you and watch you fight for us rather than walk in constant anxiety and fear trying to do it ourselves. God, bring that to our remembrance now before we take of the cup. And most of all, thank you, Jesus, that even when we fail, you have perfectly obeyed. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, that we are secure because you are righteous. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.